166 books in the Bible. Each one uniquely bearing witness to the one revelation of Jesus Christ, which we're told at the outset of the book, God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So after revealing himself to John in all his glory in chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus conveys seven letters to his bondservants. Just as he said, the intention of the letter to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So seven letters to his bondservants, the church. And in the sixth letter, he says, picking up in verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. Make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, that's our prayer. Most of us here this morning have two ears. So we should be able to doubly hear what the Spirit has to say to the church, to our fellowship here today at the bridge. Father, help us to hear. And when I say doubly here, Father, I pray you help us to hear in soul and in spirit that our minds would embrace these things and our spirits be exultant in them. Bring us into your presence, Holy Spirit, and lead us in your teaching, we pray, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a church meeting took place in Melbourne, Australia. The pastor stood up and used his most eloquent words to introduce a man who he referred to as our illustrious guest. If I ever say that, throw something at me. (laughs) He didn't anticipate their illustrious guest's response. The man stood up and said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. The man was Hudson Taylor. If you've ever heard tale or story of Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission that saved countless thousands of lives for Christ before the communist revolution changed things there, although things are spinning the other direction as countless thousands for Christ are being saved in China today. But Hudson Taylor started that ball rolling. He had previously written, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on His being with them. Would you just remember that this morning? It's not about what you bring to the table, it's about Him being with you. That's all the power you need, especially if you think like Philadelphia, the church of little power. Your ability to serve Him depends on His presence with you. Now, the church of Philadelphia, historically and prophetically, and we studied it, we looked at it already on Wednesday night, it's been well represented by people like Hudson Taylor, people of little strength who knew or who yet today know when Jesus has opened a door. The church of the open door, it's simply those who see the door open and say, yes, Lord who walk through it or invite people to enter, to go in. And this letter describes prophetically the church of the modern missionary movement. 
beginning in about the mid-1700s or so, all the way up to present day and continuing right up to the rapture of the church. The mission of the church. In fact, this is a letter, speaking of the rapture, in which Jesus makes a direct promise to keep His church out of the tribulation. For those who question, for those who wonder, he's clear. Verse 10, he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from, or literally out of, the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, we talked about this midweek. Those who dwell on the earth is a phrase only used in the book of Revelation. It's only used nine times, and every single time it's used, it speaks specifically of those who reject Jesus. Those who dwell upon the earth never refers to the church. Well, Rick, don't we dwell upon the earth? No, my mind actually dwells upon the heavens. We dwell upon Jesus. We focus on and think about Him. We don't dwell upon the things of the earth. Those who reject Him will and do And we'll see this throughout the book. You will note this as we come upon the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth. But note this. When he says, I will keep you from the hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world, that has never happened. What do you mean? There has never been a testing or trial, the word can also be, a trial that has gone on upon the whole world. Some might say, what about World War II? That was global. There's never been a trial that has come upon the whole world in which the people of Jesus Christ were kept out. It has not happened. It will happen. It speaks of the rapture of the church. Why hasn't it happened? The non-Christian will cynically question, why hasn't that happened? If you say it's going to happen, as Peter wrote, they say everything's gone on since it has since the beginning. The Christian will non-cynically question why hasn't it happened why Lord why haven't you taken us home why hasn't there been this so called global tribulation the non-believer would say and it's for one simple reason because of the word of his perseverance the word perseverance patience it is the word of his patience The Philadelphia church is the church that keeps the word of his patience. That is, looks forward to the coming of Jesus, but realizes the reason we're still here is God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to eternal life. In fact, Peter continues that thought, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 saying, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Why are we still here? Why haven't these things taken place? Because God has been patiently waiting. Perhaps for someone you know. Perhaps for someone who is here or will be here this morning. Patiently waiting. I'm not so patient. I'm saying, who are you? Because you're the reason we're all still here. Who is that person? No, no, I need to keep the word of his patience. Leave it in the hands of God and recognize we have work to do. Hudson Taylor, he was 17 when he was converted. He was raised in a godly family, but he pushed back on it, didn't really buy it, wasn't sure he could accept it. Well, one Saturday, he was home, bored out of his mind. These were the days before video games and cell phones. Nothing to do. I think boredom's a good thing, by the way. Boredom causes our minds to work in ways they don't work otherwise. In fact, that's been scientifically proven. But Hudson Taylor, sitting around on a Saturday afternoon, 17 years old, bored, wanders into his father's library and begins looking through his books. And he finds one, looks interesting, pulls it off the shelf and thinks to himself, I'm going to go find a corner, I'm going to sit and I'm going to read until I can't stand it anymore. And he opens the book and begins to read when his heart got caught on a phrase. The phrase was the finished work of Christ. He never heard it put that way before. He read it again. The finished work of Christ. And suddenly the question came to him, if the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid, what's there left for me to do? And in that moment, he dropped to his knees and he gave his life to Jesus. Realizing that the work 
was done. The finished work of Christ. Now, what's really cool about the story, that's happened to countless millions of people across 2,000 years. Recognizing Jesus, a phrase, a thought, an impression by the Lord that catches our hearts. And we drop to our knees and give our lives to Jesus. But at the moment this was happening, on that same Saturday, Hudson Taylor's mother, who was away from the family for a couple or three weeks, had an incredible burden on her heart when she woke that morning. A burden for her son who was yet to be a follower of Jesus. And so she left her friends and holed up in her room and prayed and prayed and prayed all day long until the story tells us she had such a joy fill her heart that her son had accepted Jesus. Again, remember, this is the day before cell phones, so there wasn't a text. Mom, just drop to my knees, you know. She knew he'd accepted Jesus. She goes home two weeks later. Hudson Taylor rushes up to tell her that he had accepted Jesus before he could even speak a word. She saw his face and she said, I know, I know, my boy. I know you accepted the Lord. He's like, how do you know? I was praying for you. I was interceding. She had been rejoicing in the glad news of his salvation for two weeks before she even got contact with him. Hudson Taylor, a remarkable, remarkable man. By the way, that story, you can read about it in Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. It's a great little book that talks about his life. And there are so many others. And by the way, I would also add, read books about great leaders of faith. Missionaries. There are so many excellent books out there. Pick them up. You'll be so encouraged when you read these. But the Philadelphian church is, as we see in Hudson Taylor, as we talk about Wednesday night, William Carey and others. People who went, Amy Carmichael, who gave up their lives to follow Jesus. Lottie Moon, you can go on and on recounting these, especially between about 1750 and present day. Jim Elliott. All these who gave their lives for the mission of the church. These are those who keep the word of His patience. How? By communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. By recognizing the patience of God and bringing the truth of eternal salvation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the finished work of Christ. But we left Philadelphia on Wednesday night with a question. Kind of left it hanging. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. By the way, that word quickly literally translates suddenly. People read that and they say, well, if he's coming quickly, and he said that 2,000 years ago, that's not very quick. He's coming suddenly. He's coming at a time you do not think he will. When he shows up, it's going to be instantaneous and quite a surprise. He's coming suddenly. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And the question was, what crown is he talking about? See, there are five specifically listed in the New Testament Scriptures, five crowns that are offered, that are given, that will be bestowed upon those who are followers of Jesus when we come into His presence, when we come home. And there are two possibilities here. Two crowns that he may be referencing when he says, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And the first possibility is the crown of righteousness. Note this, the crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So that's the key to the crown of righteousness, then is loving His appearing now. The crown of righteousness. I'm coming suddenly, he says. Hold fast that crown. Paul sees an absolute, unbreakable connection between righteousness and anticipation. That the one encourages the other. The more righteous you are, that is, the more focused on Jesus you are, the more you think about Jesus, the more you live for Jesus, the more you anticipate the coming of Jesus, and the more you anticipate His coming, the more it will impact your righteousness. Anticipation. All who have loved His appearing will receive, Paul says, the crown of righteousness. Paul inspired by the Spirit. This is a promise in and of itself. Now, righteousness 
is very simply the condition acceptable to God. You know, to be righteous is to be right with God, in His favor, if you will. And again, among the best ways to develop a righteousness is to love His appearing. I've talked to too many Christians who fear His appearing, worry about His appearing, or are unprepared for His appearing. Paul says, love His appearing. Look forward to it. Anticipate His coming. For Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, For this reason you must also be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give him their, give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And understand this in the context of that parable. Jesus describes a slave that's looking forward to his master's return and one that's not. The one that's not, the one that says he's a long time off is the slave that gets drunk and beats his fellow slaves and does not give them their food. But the one anticipating his master's return at any time is the one who feeds, who cares, who nurtures, the righteous slave. Jesus says this is the right attitude. John tells us the same thing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. The hope of the presence of Jesus. The hope of being like Him. Of seeing Him just as He is. See, that hope, that anticipation spurs righteousness which spurs anticipation. Now, what's really cool here is to help us with this whole mindset of loving His appearing, Jesus does something in these letters. We've already looked at it, thought about it. In fact, we've been thinking about it. It's the whole reason we've slowed up in looking at the seven letters to the church. Jesus does something that I believe was intended to advance our worldviews from internal to external to eternal. To move us from internal, thinking about the self, focused on me, to external, beginning to care for and look after other people, to eternal, which is the basis for everything then that we do. How does Jesus do that? He's just a master teacher. See, what He does is He begins by talking about things like the tree of life and the garden of God. And then the crown of life. And the hidden manna, and the white stone with your new secret name. He promises shepherd rule in the kingdom. He tells us, you will walk with me in garments of white, while He proclaims our names through the heavens. All of these P.S.'s, all of these promises in these seven letters, are designed to help us with the issue of anticipation. To paint a picture for us of what is to come, to get us excited It's like talking about your kids, talking with your kids about Christmas morning. The whole question of what do you want for Christmas is not so they'll give you a list that you'll fill. It's anticipation, it's excitement. I love driving my kids nuts with anticipation. What do you want? They tell me, I'm like, "Ah, I don't know if the budget's going to cover that this year. I don't know, maybe. I mean, you always have to leave the maybe out there. You know, you already bought it. It's been in the closet for two months. But the anticipation, the looking forward. And this is so much greater. And so Jesus begins to give these promises and paint these pictures. And we look at them and think, this is amazing. To walk with Him, to hear my name spoken by Him, to wear garments of white, to be a shepherd ruler alongside Him, paradise in the garden of God, to all of these things. He promises even as He promised to go and prepare a place for us. John 14, verses 1 through 3. See, that's what's great about Jesus. He's preparing a place for us while He's preparing our hearts right now, if we'll let Him, to receive the promises. Anticipation. I hear a number of my younger siblings in our fellowship from time to time, and it's happened many times, say, not yet, Jesus. Or ask the question, is it okay to want to get my driver's license first? (laughs) I'm like, why do you want to drive when you can fly? 
but, but I, but I want to get married. But, but, but you will, dressed in white. Yeah, but I want to graduate. Oh, let's talk about a graduation. Yeah, but, but to have kids, to build a home, to see the world, you know, to experience life. I get it. I understand. In fact, when I was younger, I had all of those anticipations. Most of them are behind me now, which is weird. But I understand that and those aspirations, they're fine. No problem looking forward to those things. They're blessings from God. They're things He gives us in this life that we might even now have enjoyment. Gives it to sinner and saint alike. Non-believer and believer alike are offered the blessings of, of this life. And there are many of those. But, but never forget what Jesus said. Matthew 16.26 What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So are you going to live a life based on your deeds or are you going to commit one deed, fall to your knees and believe in Jesus and get it all and everything eternally promised? The crown of righteousness is that crown that is given to those who live right. That is all those who love His appearing. Hold fast so that no one will take your crown. But I don't think that's the crown He's talking about. Well, why'd you spend all that time talking about that crown? Because I like that crown. (laughs) It's a good crown. The crown he's talking about. Hold fast to your crown. You've got to think about the context of the promise. The context of the promise, he's talking to Philadelphia. He's talking to the missional church. He's talking to the church that has gone out. The church that has looked beyond itself. The church of the Hudson Taylors, if you will. It's the church of Jesus Christ. But those who follow after Him. And He says, hold fast to that crown so that no one will take it? Now that's interesting. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No one will take it. If it's a crown to be given to me in glory, then that's not a crown that's going to be taken away. So this is a crown that I could receive even now might begin to experience even today, hold fast the word of my patience so no one will take it away. Hmm. This is the one crown of the five that you don't wear. Remember, Jesus is talking, again, to Philadelphia, church of a mission, a people who keep the word of His patience. For who? For other people. Because this is a crown of people. It's a crown of people. This is what you could call the crown of exaltation, which Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 when he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming, you are our glory and our joy, the crown of exaltation. It is the crown of the missionary, you could call it. The crown of the evangelist. This is the crown that comes as you bring Jesus to people. Can you imagine Hudson Taylor surrounded by Chinese believers? There's his crown. There's the crown of exaltation. Exaltation simply means rejoicing. Can metal rejoice? Can gold or or silver or precious stones leap up and rejoice? No, people rejoice. And so the crown of our exaltation, the crown of our joy, it's right here this morning. It's when we gather. It's the fellowship of believers. This is the crown of of the evangelist, and it is now, and it is then. Hold fast to it. Cling to that crown. Someone yet needs to hear and to believe. And by the way, to my younger brothers and sisters who wonder about the things that might be missed now as opposed to the promises then, nothing brings more joy, more fulfillment in life than seeing another person saved. Do you want a crown to wear? Bring the name of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Boy, that that song, and I forget the name of it, Rachel, where we respond, He is. What's the name of that? Is He worthy? (laughs) Oh, He is. And as we sang that, I'm just thinking, what a, what a stunning thought. He is so worthy. And us to surround and to sing of His glory. 
as a crown around the Lord Himself. This is the crown of the evangelist. Salvation in the life of another is the most exciting, wonderful thing you can experience in this life. And by the way, older brothers and sisters, don't you think for a moment that your crowning days on earth are just about through? You are not through until you've taken your final breath and you go home to be with Him. Proverbs 16.31 says, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Righteousness, loving is appearing. The crown of glory. The gray head, again that loves is appearing, still regards the patience of our Lord as salvation for other people. And that means no matter what age you are, you are still looking for a friend to see saved. A son, a daughter, maybe a grandchild. I'm in that weird age now. That strange place of having little ones that call me granddad. Did I tell you that Silas started out calling me (laughs) Gandad, which sounds a lot like Gandalf, and I thought, that's cool. (laughs) Granddad. Proverbs 17, verse 6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. How so? Because it's the responsibility of fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, to teach Jesus, first and foremost, to those in our families, but then to continue speaking the name in the patience of His salvation. It is profoundly moving to realize that among the five crowns that are given, the crown of exaltation, again, is the only one made up of people worshiping Jesus in all His glory. And I know what some are thinking. Anytime you mention a grandfather or a father or mother bringing salvation, speaking salvation to sons and daughters, you always run the risk of people saying, yeah, but I have a son who doesn't believe. I have a daughter. We brought her up going to church. And she doesn't believe. I have a grandchild who's never been in church. And it pains us. What kind of crown is that? You want the crown, right? You want to see your family in the embrace of Jesus, in salvation. What do you do if you don't have loved ones who believe intercede? And don't stop. See, what the devil would do is discourage. Well, I've done all I can. No, you haven't. Keep praying. Intercede. Pray on. Think about Hudson Taylor's mother. Granted, he was only 17, but it had been 17 years. And you have that age of accountability somewhere in there. And oh no, if he gets to adulthood and he hasn't believed, what then? And she was earnestly praying for her son. Heavily burdened for her son. Interceding for her son. And he ended up not only being saved, but being a tool of massive salvation for people. Pray and don't stop praying. Intercede and don't stop interceding. By the way, one of the best times to intercede for your children, for your grandchildren, is when they're sleeping. For one thing, they can't talk back. But for another thing, the Bible tells us that the Lord gives even in our sleep. Pray for them. Intercede for them. This is the crown of exaltation. This is a crown we wear, but it's really not a crown that's even about us. It's about those who make up that crown. So young, old, or in between, the question is never, what are you living for? It's, who are you living for? And there's a two-part answer to that. Living for Jesus. Living for the lost. That's the crown. That's the crown, I believe, that Jesus is talking about. Hold fast what you have. What do you have? The word of His perseverance. What do we really have to offer this world? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold fast so that no one will take your crown. Well, the Philly church holds this crown. The Philly church works for this crown tirelessly. But there's a further promise here. And it's one that I think is very interesting. You see, for all their tireless efforts abroad, 
this mission-minded Philadelphian church. For all the going out, when it's all said and done, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. I'm not going to click my heels together. But I will tell you a secret. There is nowhere I would rather be in this world or in my life than home. I can be high energy. I love being around people. I love being out and about and doing things. And, and the busyness of my life, it, it can be crazy at times. My, my family, my mother and father and my brother think I'm nuts. They really do. They tell me this on an ongoing basis. You're nuts. They hear about my schedule. They're nuts. I love it. And yet, if there's anything I would rather do, if, if there's one thing you ask me, Rick, what do you love more than anything else? I love being home. I love slippers on my feet. Pajamas. A soft couch. The fireplace. I love being around my kids when they're chilling. I just love being home. One of my favorite Christmas songs, Perry Como sang it back in 1954, Home for the Holidays. And I couldn't agree more. There's no place like home for the holidays. He sings, For no matter how far away you roam, if you want to be happy in a million ways for the holidays, you can't beat home sweet home. Now the problem with that song is he gets into the verse and it's all about traveling. From Atlantic to Pacific. Gee, the traffic is terrific. That doesn't sound appealing at all. My daughter and her family now live down in Auburn. They're in the state. We don't have to go to Wisconsin anymore to visit. I love it. I hate that drive. Two and a half hours down, two and a half hours back. I know I'm in for five hours if I want to go for a visit on a day. Stinks. There's no place like home, my home, for the holidays. That's where I want to be. And that's what makes the promises of the Philadelphia church really so sweet. Home sweet, you might say. Verse 12, he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. How apropos that the promise to the Philadelphia church, which is the church that goes out to the nations, the church that is mission-minded, the church that keeps the word of His patience, of salvation in Jesus, is the church that's promised you get to stay home. You don't have to go out anymore. Rachel and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago and she said, I don't know about that pillar thing. That's a weird one. And I'm not quoting her directly, but I thought it was so funny. She said, I can't imagine being a pillar in the temple. And you're just going to stand there all day? I mean, what is that? It's a promise of staying home. You don't have to go out anymore. You can. Probably not going to want to. The work is finished. Even the traffic and the travel, it's all through. No more going. No more like, was it Lottie Moon who was 55 years on the mission field and never took a furlough? Never went home. And Jesus says, she's home. I've got a home for you. A home not just for the holidays, but a home forever. Now get this, to the Hebrew mind, the home, this idea of of being A pillar in the temple of God is more than just standing there holding up the porch. These solid bronze pillars of the temple had very special meaning. So let's look at it. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 7 in your Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 7. There in the Older Testament. Right after 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, chapter 7, verse 13. Solomon is finally carrying out the building of the temple. He's also built his own palace in there. It takes a little sidetrack for a bit. But he gets back to the work of the temple. And in verse 13 of 1st Kings, chapter 7, it says, Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. 
And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. He fashioned two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar. And a line of twelve cubits measured the circumference of both. That's an 18-foot circumference around these pillars. Twenty-seven feet high. It said that they were four fingers thick of solid bronze and then hollow in the middle. But four fingers thick all the way around. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. And the height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. So put the capitals on top of the pillars, and you're talking about a beam structure with a capital on top that would be 34 and a half feet high. Huge. And there were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillar. Or the pillars, seven for one capital and seven for the other capital. And so he made the pillars. And two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals, which were on the top of the pomegranates. So he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on the top of the pillars in the porch were of lily design for cubits. And there were capitals on the two pillars, each above and close to the rounded projection, which was beside the network, and the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. And some of you are going, I, you lost me a pillar. <laughs> Verse 21, Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Yaquin, and he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. On the top of the pillars was lily design, so the work of the pillars was finished. So these huge 34 and a half feet high massive pillars that stood on the right side and on the left side of the entrance to the holy place of Solomon's temple. Bronze, so shining bright, gleaming in the sunlight. And he even named them. He named the pillars. Yeah, verse 21 gives the names. Yaquin, the right hand pillar. Yaquin means He will establish. The left-hand pillar, Boaz, means in his strength. He will establish. And in his strength, the Jewish mind understands this. In the same way, the pillar that Jesus promises to Philadelphia portrays permanence and stability. Permanence and stability. How stable is your life? You know, ask that question on any given week and different people will give different answers. Your life may be very stable right now. I love you, but I'm going to tell you, it's not always going to be. You will go into seasons of great instability, of great upheaval. I was listening on the news the other day and someone made a comment that, in fact, I think it was just a commercial, so it may not even be true, but the comment was made that there's a 99.9% chance that the job you're in right now, you will not be in in five years. Which kind of unnerved me a little bit. (laughs) Until I thought, oh, he's talking about the rapture. Well, then I'm fine with that. (laughs) Instability. We work so hard for stability in our lives. But how really permanent is your place? Or your position? Or your... Possessions, You know, as soon as we think these things are stable and permanent, something happens. Something changes. Are you among those who, who fear it could all just go away? And so there's always in the back of your mind, if I'm not ready, if I'm not prepared, if I don't have it all together, this, this could happen to me. Or do you buy the lie? Worse, are you among those who actually believes in human durability? I've done everything I need to do. My life is secure. It is solid. My friends, there is only one source of strength and stability on earth. And the name is Jesus Christ. If you would be stable in your life, regardless of how the winds blow or the waves crash against your world, if you would be stable in your life, Jesus is your Christ. No matter the changes that come, if you would have permanence, You can only find that in Jesus. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. 
Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late, overworkers. To eat the bread of painful labors. labors, And here's the verse I referenced earlier. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. See, the farmer goes to sleep and the crops are still growing. That's how God likes to work. He's moving underneath the surface. He's doing what needs to be done. And all He asks of you, all He asks of me, is trust me for your permanence and for your stability. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him. Listen, and we will come to him and will make our abode with him. If Jesus makes His abode with you, do you think He's going to let that house be shattered by earthquake or difficulty or struggle or fire or famine? If Jesus makes His abode with you, though the winds and the waves and the rains crash against the house, if it is built on the rock of His Word, it will stand. There's your stability. They say, home is where the heart is. Well, the Bible says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. That's our stability. He's our permanence. Listen, Philadelphia. And this comes back to the promise. Why I love the idea of being a pillar in the temple. Philadelphia, for all its evangelistic energy and its missionary muscle, is still the church, verse 8, with little strength, little power. Micron dunamis. Just that much. It's interesting that that's the mission church. The one with little power. Not the Thyatira with great political power, but the mission-minded church. You don't have much power. Well, wait, shouldn't we have power? All the power you need is in the hand of God. You don't have it, but He sure does. And He will move in us and through us. Hudson Taylor said, listen, since the days of Pentecost, has the whole church ever put aside every other work and waited upon Him for ten days? That stunned me. In 2,000 years, I don't know, has the church ever just stopped everything we were doing and said for the next 10 days, we're going to do an Acts chapter 1. We're just going to pray and wait. He goes on and says, has the church ever done this, waited upon Him for 10 days, that the Spirit's power might be manifested. We give too much attention to method and machinery and resources and too little to the source of power. Our stability, our strength. God establishes pillars. Christ is our strength. We just keep His Word. The Word of His patience. The name of Jesus. In fact, that's what He said. Notice that back in verse 8. You have little power. You've kept My Word and you've not denied My name. That's all you need to do. Keep my word. Don't deny my name. doesn't matter if you have a little power. In fact, little power is a blessing because then you know where the big power comes from. Oh, I'll make you pillars in the temple of my God. You will not go out from it anymore. Pillars, by the way, in the Greek lingo, one more thing about pillars, it can also indicate something else. It has another meaning. Paul uses it this way. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, same word, pillars, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. We call them pillars in the community. You know, pillars of the church, leaders, establishers, founders, the old vanguard, you might say. And the old vanguard is never irrelevant, out of touch. Always strong in the Lord. But the promise is, you want to be a pillar? We get to be home. It's a home promise. This among all the promises of the letters for the homebody like me is the sweetest. It's the best. It's like like Joshua. We get to be like Joshua. What do you mean? 
Exodus 33.11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. He, he just wanted to stay as close to God as possible. Didn't even want to leave the tent of meeting. And so stayed there. He's like Anna. Anna, who, the 84-year-old Jewish prophetess, do you remember the name Anna? At the time of the birth of Christ, Luke 2.37, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Why? Because she wanted to be as close to God as possible, because Anna wanted to be home. I guarantee you, people like Joshua and Anna are pillars in the temple of God. And they will not go out from it anymore. These are the ones who get it. Who understand that for all our going out and all the work and all the ministry and mission that we are called to in this life, if we long to be home, we will be home. And this is the home sweet home sweetness, home sweet home sweetness, sweet home sweetness, whatever you want to say, of pillars in the temple. But wait, you don't have to wait for it. You can start practicing this right now. See, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? See, as much as the promise is that we'll be home, He makes His home right now. And all these little temples run around the earth. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And part of staying home then, yes, it's going out now. Going out with a longing for home, but knowing that Christ has made His home in you and with you. And if that's not enough, that promise of home, wait, there's more. He goes on and says, And I will write on Him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Three things. Note these quickly. The name of my God, he says. I'm going to write the name of my God on these people, these, these pillars, these faithful missionaries. The name of my God. This may be, some think it's an allusion again to the temple and to an ancient temple artifact. Turn back to Exodus real quickly. Exodus chapter 28. Go. <laughs> Exodus chapter 28, Genesis, Exodus. And check this out, because this artifact that had the name of God actually written on it. You know, today the Jewish people, they say Hashem, the name. They won't even speak Yahweh or Yeshua or Jehovah. We're not even sure exactly how you, the YHWH, the Tetragrammaton, what is the exact pronunciation? The pronunciation has been lost. But the name was written on a crown, interestingly. Exodus 28, verse 36. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it, like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it with a blue cord and it shall be on the turban and it shall be in front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be acceptable before the Lord. A crown that said, Holy to the Lord. Kadosh la Yahweh. Written in Hebrew on that crown, actually written this way. (laughs) Written on the crown. What's the point here? Listen, Aaron was owned. When he put that crown on, he was owned. He was considered holy to the Lord. He belonged to the Lord. Holy, unique, set apart for the purposes of the Lord. But, get this, Aaron could exit the temple. And in fact, when he did, he was to take all of the high priestly garments off and be washed, and then he could go out. So he didn't just wear the crown like down to McDonald's, you know. McManus, 
I don't know. He, he couldn't wear the crown just wherever he wanted to go. He took off that golden mitre. And furthermore, if you think about it, what, what, is, what does Jesus say? I'm going to write the name of my God on you. I'm not writing it on a crown and sticking that on your head. I'm writing it on you. Permanently inked, indelibly tattooed forever. Marked. Now some might read this and think, pillars in the temple with God's name written on me sounds like slavery. I'm stuck. I'm in the house. I'm an indentured servant for life. I can't go out. I'm holding up this porch. God's name on my head. Sounds terrible. Actually, it's the most liberating freedom. Alexander McLaren said, if we here yield ourselves to God and depart from that foolish and always frustrated attempt to be our own masters and owners, so escaping the misery and burden of selfhood and entering into the liberty of the children of God, we shall be holy gods. We will belong completely to God. Or in another place, Romans chapter 6, just listen to this. Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from that form of teaching to which you were committed And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. He says, I'm I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And Hudson Taylor, he said... Christ is either Lord of all or He is not Lord at all. So the whole idea of the Lordship of Jesus is that I come completely under His power. Think about it this way. It's not like slaves tattooed and chained up. We're not like Samson between the pillars in a Philistine temple. No. The name of God in the house of God You know what that's a picture of? Children. Kids. Get to play all day long. Don't have to go out and go to work. Don't have to gas up the car. Don't have to worry about home maintenance. You don't have to concern yourself about schedules and timing and going here, there, or anywhere. No, a child in the house who belongs. My kids, they all have my name on them. They're all Crawfords. This is a better name. The name of my God will be written on you. And he says, and not only that, the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem. And this is the ultimate identification with God and with His city. But what does this mean? Think about it. It's a hint of our future zip code. The name of New Jerusalem. Where do you belong? New Jerusalem. Where do you belong? New Jerusalem. I don't know where it's going to be written. Where do you go? You know, it's great. It, you know, if you if you end up getting Alzheimer's and you wander off, <laughs> where's he go? Oh, he's New Jerusalem. Just send him back over there. <laughs> the name of my God in New Jerusalem. You know what this really points to? It's already been hinted at in these promises. It points to a passport of authority, the right to go anywhere I want to go. And get back to where I belong. It's bearing the truth of where I come from and to whom I belong, and I have irrevocable access to God, to New Jerusalem. See, here's what this is not like Jim Acosta's White House pass. <laughs> Can be taken away, you know, given back, gotta go to the judges. I mean, that whole mess. No, it's not like that. I have automatic and irrevocable access. To New Jerusalem, to the new earth, to the new heaven. We'll talk about this more when we get to the end of the revelation, if we ever get there before Jesus comes. And I really pray we don't. But we'll talk about this, Revelation 21 and 22, and you can read ahead and look at it. The new heavens, 
New Jerusalem, New Earth, and all indications are we can move freely throughout. This is not some vague, esoteric, ethereal existence where we kind of float by and go, Oh, hey, there goes Josh Rollins. <laughs> this is going to be real life, more real than anything we've ever experienced. And we will have access to heaven and to earth and to New Jerusalem. We can move freely, but we always know where home is. They're in New Jerusalem. That's our home. That's where we belong. There with our God. His name, his, his city's name written on us. And I have a feeling that though we can move freely up and down and all around, that for the most part, we're just going to be staying in a lot. And we're going to be singing. There's no place like home for the holidays or for any day. Well, finally, Jesus says, and I am going to write my new name. He just doesn't stop. I get the name of God. I get New Jerusalem written on me. All the other promises we referenced earlier. And Jesus says, but I want to put my name on you. Yeshua? No. My new name. My new name. A new name? Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. What about Jesus? Don't you love the name of Jesus? There are few names that bring me more instant peace, more instant security, more instant joy than the name of Jesus. I can be in a complete mess and hear Jesus' name and everything changes. And if you don't feel that way, you need to know Him. Because the only reason you don't feel that way is you don't really know Him. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. And so I read this that He's going to give me His new name, and I, I, but I like Jesus. <laughs> I'll go with Yeshua. That's cool. It's Hebrew. But I, 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 want, I want to speak the name of Jesus. Hey, listen. He'll always be Jesus. How do you know that? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He'll always be Jesus, but, but He has a new name. You want to hear it? Yes. Alright, here we go. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Is that it? No, that's not it. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on himself, which no one knows except himself. There it is. his new name and he's the only one that knows it but you're going to have it written on you it will be written on me listen here's the point the name always speaks of the nature why is this a name that nobody knows but himself because the only one who really knows Jesus is Jesus the only one who fully comprehends the depth of who He is, is Jesus Christ. And the point is, you think you know Jesus now? You are barely getting started. He's more wonderful. He is more unfathomable. Deeper than any depths we could ever hope to sound. And I'm talking a gazillion years into eternity, there will still be more of Jesus to know that we don't know at that time. What a marvelous promise. And just think of all the time we'll have to discover and know Him at home for all eternity. And Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Great promises. Last question. The one who receives these promises, these these Philadelphia promises is the overcomer. And we've noted as with every letter, the overcomer is someone who has overcome something specific in that letter. But I read the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, I'm like, what has he overcome? There's nothing to overcome here. This is the the one who who understands and who's gone out. This is the, the church about which Jesus had nothing negative to say. So what has Philadelphia overcome? I suggest something to you. 
I suggest that the overcomers of Philadelphia overcame Sardis. What do you mean? Overcame the same thing that Sardis was itself rebuked to overcome and Philadelphia did. And what is that? It's relying on our name instead of His. Which is why Philadelphia are the overcomers who no longer rely on their name, their church's name, their establishment's name, their organization name, their mission society's name. Philadelphia doesn't rely on those names. Philadelphia relies on one name. Verse 8 of chapter 3, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And because of that, you have a crown. A crown of exaltation, a crown of joy, of people saved. Because of that, you'll be a pillar in the temple of His God. He's going to write on you the name of His God, the name of the new Jerusalem, and His own name. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is so precious to us. This is so encouraging. And so uplifting. And once again reminds me to look forward and anticipate the coming of Jesus and all these promises. Father, I also get a real sense of excitement because sometimes we get tired in the work. How much better knowing, Lord Jesus, we're going home. We'll be with You. We'll stay in. We'll worship You. We'll know Your presence always. Father, thank You. I pray these promises would be sealed in our hearts. Even as Your Spirit is our seal for salvation, would You, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, take all the promises of all these letters and and just seal them deep within us so that we would be anticipating Your arrival. Even, Lord Jesus, as we are going out with the word of Your patience into a lost world. In Jesus' name. Amen.